Today we remember, it seems very loud. Today we remember St. Francis, and at 9 a.m., as, as you've heard, we're having our, our Bring a Pet service, which it seems that all of you were wise enough to avoid. <laughs> um, and you'll find that my sermon's probably a bit shorter this morning because I'm not certain about the concentration span of the average bunny. Um, so although my sermon does rove around a bit, there is some scripture and some theology and, and also an animal theme. It has been suggested that the purest love in the world is that between a grumpy dad and the pet he said he didn't want. In our home, that would definitely be the grumpy mom and the dog she wasn't at all keen on getting, but who has completely stolen her heart. I think that sometimes we feel almost embarrassed, um, perhaps a bit ashamed or even guilty about the way that we love our pets, as if we think that God might be in some way disapproving, slightly jealous, dare I even say, of the love that we feel for them and the place that they hold in our hearts. And we ask ourselves questions about their souls, whether we will be reunited with our pets in heaven, and we're almost half ashamed to hope, really, and at the same time doubtful whether God really is that concerned about our animals at all. We had an ethics lecturer at Theological College who said that to understand anything, ethics in particular, but in fact anything at all, one had to go back to the beginning, to Genesis. And we need to understand our true identity, our place, and our purpose in the world before we can begin to think properly about almost anything else. And so that's where I begin today. In our reading from Genesis, we see a picture of the establishment of the natural order of creation in which we find ourselves. And there are some things to note. First is God's pleasure, his delight in the abundant life that springs from his fingertips, the goodness of all that he's made. He is pleased. He relishes it. It's all so good. He smiles over it. The second is our identity and place in this creation. We are unmistakably part of God's creation. We are not God, nor are we his equals. And yet we're made with a particular likeness to God, with a similarity in our characteristics, in our creativity, in our ability to care. We are made in the likeness of God. And we are precious to him. And we hold a special place amongst all that he has created. And finally, we're charged with a position of custodianship over the whole earth. We are not to be exploiters or dominators, takers, wasters, abusers, or destroyers, but caretakers, guardians, stewards, and protectors. It's really important that we understand our identity and our purpose here because how we see ourselves is absolutely key to how we live out our lives on earth. And so I would suggest that the love we feel for the animals around us, and especially those with a particular dependence on us, those with whom we share our homes, our food, our affection, that love is a proper response. It's a right expression. It's a godly love. And so far from feeling guilty or ashamed or embarrassed about the love that we feel for our pets, that, that great emotion that we feel for them, 
we should remember that it is part of the natural ordained way in which we are charged with care for the creation. It also forms part of a bigger picture, part of a network of relationships, which also includes God's love for and relationship with us. Now, I wouldn't for a moment want to suggest that God sees us as pets. In fact, the Bible gives a number of descriptions for the way that God does see us, and that would include things like friends, heirs, members of a household of God, sons and daughters. But the point I'm trying to make is that our love for the created order forms only part of a great web of love and in a way mirrors God's love for us. That love is at other times compared to that of husbands and wives in marriage, to that of friends, to that between parents and children, all imperfect analogies but forming part of a picture of God's great love for us. There is a line from Eugene Peterson's translation of the Bible called The Message, which I love. It comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 12. And it says, Mostly what God does is love you. Listen to that again. Mostly what God does is love you. If we can find a way to let that message of love settle into our hearts, we gain a sense of our secure identity, which sets our foundations and helps us to think properly about everything else. It is Jesus who holds everything in creation together. There's a beautiful passage at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Colossians, which I'm going to read also from the message. Paul writes about Jesus. From beginning to end, he's there towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in, a, in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, the blood that poured down from the cross. Everything finds its proper place in him. People and things, animals and atoms, fixed and fitted together in harmony. So love your animals with all your heart. Protect them, care for their needs, show your affection to them. And as you do, remember your own place in the created order as a member of God's own household, yourself dearly loved. Paul continues to write to the Colossians, I want you woven into a tapestry of love, in touch with everything there is to know of God. Then you will have minds confident and at rest, focused on Christ. As we come to know and love Jesus, we are woven into a tapestry of love, woven into a set of good relationships with creation, with each other, and with the Creator. We become in touch with everything there is to know of God by speaking to Him in our own prayers and the prayers of others for us, by reading and digesting Scripture, by a fellowship together in a family of faith, and by His counseling Spirit at work within us. 
I want you woven into a tapestry of love, in touch with everything there is to know of God. Then you will have minds confident and at rest, focused on Christ. Many of us know the story of St. Francis, whose feast day we celebrate on the 4th of October. He was born in Assisi in Italy in the late 1100s, the son of a prosperous Italian silk merchant and a French noblewoman mother. Reputedly handsome and witty and indulged by his parents, he lived the high-spirited life of a wealthy young man, spending money lavishly on clothes and the pleasures of life. But he seems quite early in life to have become disillusioned with this life of luxury, and his spiritual conversion was a gradual process that was rooted in his experiences as a soldier, as a prisoner of war, and as a pilgrim. It's interesting that while his mother appears to have been more open to his decisions, his father was very unsympathetic, and he was forced legally to forego his inheritance as a restitution for some of his, mother, his father's money and goods that he took and gave away for the restoration of a chapel. And he eventually completely renounced his father and his family claims, his family line, completely. He lived a life of simplicity as a traveling preacher, teaching penance and brotherly love and peace. And as he drew followers to him, he established the orders which carry his name today and which include both those who take religious vows and also a secular, secular Franciscan order. He's the patron saint of stowaways, of Italy, of ecology and animals. He died at the age of 44 in the evening of October 3rd, 1226, while listening to Psalm 142, which he had requested be read aloud to him. Apart from the obvious animal theme, there is much about his life that fits in with our readings for today. Simplicity, clearly, which, which links to our gospel reading, but perhaps most obviously again in the light of the Genesis reading, is Francis's clear understanding of his identity and purpose. He chose to define himself not by his family lineage or his possessions or his power, but by his relationship to God. He was woven into a tapestry of love, in the communities he founded, and in his ministry to everyone he met, which included the Pope and the lepers to whom he ministered. All he did, he was able to do, because he knew who he was. His identity was founded in his relationship with God. Nicky Gumbel tells a story of a man named Jonathan Gabay, a writer who was facing employment challenges and, and stress and, and really hit rock bottom. He began to ask questions about the meaning of life and in fact wrote letters to people in all walks of life, to world leaders, the homeless, to Oscar-winning actors, philosophers, comedians, taxi drivers, teachers, explorers, prisoners on death row, and even a letter to Nicky Gumbel. To each one he asked, what is the meaning of life? Jonathan Gabay then edited and compiled a book of all of the responses he received. You can put that on my Christmas list. <laughs> Together with the responses of others who had attempted over time to answer this question, whether in flippant or in serious ways. 
numerous people replied that the meaning and purpose of life was to be found in Jesus Christ. Not only the usual suspects, such as Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, but actors, scientists, political figures, such as the Lord Chancellor. Graham Kentfield, who was the chief cashier of the Bank of England at the time, and whose signature appeared on every banknote then in circulation, wrote, I am clear that the meaning of life can only be properly understood in the context of our relationship with God. And so I believe our ethics lecturer was correct. Everything, life itself, finds meaning and purpose when we return to the beginning, to the identity we find as members in the household of God, to the place in creation for which we were made and intended, where we both give and receive love, where we find ourselves woven into a tapestry of love, with minds confident and at rest, focused on Christ. Amen.